Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey back to the 80s is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. Hello, Bill. You know, I, I never get to do that. I just realized it. I know, I was thinking about that. I'm like, one of these times we're going to have to switch this up. And you're Hello, to do the openings. you know? Yeah. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here with you this evening, Bill Bant, to talk about flippity flops, man. Well, there's no flipping. It's just flopping. Flopping and bombing. Absolutely, man. Uh, this was a fun exercise. Do we want to want to give a description as to what this mini-sode is about? Yes. So this week we have a special mini-sode for you. Uh, Jason and I are going to list five movies that we enjoyed from the 80s, but these movies were flops. They were movies we liked that happened to bomb at the box office. And I think Jason and I have different parameters on how, what we want to include in our flop list. As we mentioned, these movies bombed, they flopped, the studios was not happy with them. Some of them went on to become cult classics, but in the movie theater, stinkaroos. Absolutely. These movies are in, are in the flop house, yes. I guess, of sorts. I don't know if that makes any sense whatsoever, but... This is great, man. I'm glad you were specific about the fact that these are our favorite flops. So it doesn't mean these movies were necessarily good or bad. There's just some of our favorites that just didn't do very well for whatever reasons. And uh, we have different reasons for why a movie might have not done well. Like I said, either a flop or a bomb, or it's considered that. So for me personally, I came up with four criteria. I'm sure we'll have some crossover here, Bill Bant. But uh, number one, the most obvious one, that it did not make back its budget. It didn't cover the cost. Uh, That's the most obvious one, according to me. Number two, that on top of that fact, it didn't make a profit. And like, but by today's standards, as far as I have heard, or to my knowledge, a film has to make around two to two and a half times the budget in order to consider it being profitable, that it's in the green. Thirdly, a movie can be considered a flop or a bomb if it just didn't meet critical or audience expectations. There are films out there that have made money, even twice the budget, but because of the cast, the director, and other circumstances surrounding the film, the expectation of its success or potential success was so high that either the standard couldn't be met or it was impossible or yeah, just failed to be as good as we thought it was going to be. And so lastly, I just put a film that simply was not seen or didn't find recognition due to extenuating circumstances. Sometimes it's nobody's fault. It's just bad luck. It could be bad timing. Uh, Whenever it was released, it could be other movies, higher caliber, whatever reason uh, came out at the same time and it got swallowed. Uh, And we'll get into that. You'll see examples of that hopefully coming up. So those were my four criteria for what makes a flop or a bomb. Okay. Um, So my parameters are, I only took into account movies that did not make their money back domestically in the United States. So they literally did not even make budget. So the abyss Tron guys didn't make my list. I picked movies that if we've already discussed them on our show, they did not make the cut because we already discussed them. So Manhunter, Big Trouble in Little China, didn't make my list. That was tough. I so want to just talk about Big Trouble in Little China again, just for the hell of it. And then um, I picked movies that most of our audience have heard of. So uh, no Aloha Summer, no The Prey, no Edge of the Axe or Fortress. So you guys are out too, since no one knows or even seen probably any of those movies. So wait, taking a step back, you said what were the, it was Big Trouble in China. And what was the other one you said? Uh, Manhunter. Right, right. Oh, wow. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. You can edit okay. that out. I was just like, oh, shit. Did I have that on my list? No. Okay. We're good. You know, we each had different criteria, which is fine. And then, um, so our lists are in no particular order. Uh, Jason, I've not discussed our lists. No, so yeah. we're going to be just as surprised as you are. And I told Jason before we started, I'm guessing we have at least two matches. That's yeah. my guess. So the over under So the over under is two or one and a half. We go one and a half, right? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not an odds maker. So I, yeah, I'm terrible with that too. I'm I'm not a betting man. Let's get back to talking about movies. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you want to go first? 
And I don't even know what, what would consider be considered half of a movie anyway. That's true. <laughs> a part one. <laughs> so yeah, I can go first, Bill Bant. Okay. Let's get this train rolling on the tracks. I'm going to start with one that's super easy. I'm going to, I'm, we're going to play a little game here where uh, we name some of the actors and the director and see if you can guess which film I am going to start with here for one of my favorite flops. All right. Yes. This film was directed by Philip Kaufman. And this is how easy it is because it has one of the most stellar ensemble casts of all time including Sam Shepard, Dennis Quaid, Ed Harris, Scott Glenn, Lance Henriksen, Barbara Hershey, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Shearer, Jeff Goldblum, Pamela Reed, Mary Jo Deschanel, Kathy Baker, and I'm sad to say, Fred Ward. Yes. R.I.P. Oh, that got me, man. Yeah, that was... You know how I found out? was uh, thanks to your post, actually, I believe, on one of the socials. And I was like, oh, man. So... Do you have a guess? Yes. You know, I should have put down the five I thought you were going to pick because this would have been on the list. And it's uh, 1983's The Right Stuff. Has to be absolutely correct, Bill Bant. This has been at the forefront of my mind. I was fortunate enough to cover this film at some length with our friends over at the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast. By the way, that's a great podcast. Please check them out. So... This is considered a flop because in 1983, its budget was approximately $27 million and took in just over $21 million. So it did not make back its budget. This is an epic historical drama, as I mentioned, directed by Philip Kaufman. It's a film about the beginnings of our space program, which basically follows two concurrent storylines, one following the daring and record-breaking feats of fighter jock and test pilot Chuck Yeager, played by Sam Shepard, and uh, the other storyline following the Mercury 7 astronauts from their recruitment to the training to their eventual first flights into space and orbit around the Earth, based on the novel of the same name by Thomas Wolfe. Uh, it really features an incredible performance by Sam Shepard as Chuck Yeager. Uh, he was nominated for Sporting Actor, This movie has amazing sound design, wonderful practical and special effects that are almost completely solid today. I mean, they really hold up today. It's really, really cool. The movie does a hell of a job not only covering the development of the space program from the late 1940s all the way through the early 1960s, but as tremendous hard as it portrays these men who were putting it all on the line, not only for our country, but also in the name of adventure and exploration, the Truly had the the right stuff. Um, I mentioned Sam Shepard was nominated for supporting actor. This movie was nominated for eight Oscars. It won four. And this movie is a flop, Bill. Yeah. Uh, I adore this movie. Now, there's probably a few different reasons why it didn't do, uh, do so hot at the box office. One being that it's a long movie. Total running time of three hours and 13 minutes. So that is a deterrent for a lot of folks. Now, my take is uh, not only was it long, but it's a histor- like a historical drama. So that can be a turnoff for some people. That's not something that's going to make you want to run to the theater. Here's probably another big reason why it didn't end up doing so well. There's a, a movie called Return of the Jedi that came out this year. Oh, yeah. Heard about yeah that. And that kind of swallowed everything. So, But yeah, this is uh, number one on my list has to be, I have seen this film, even though it's three hours and 13 minutes, I've seen it several times. It's inspiring. Again, from a filmmaking standpoint and from every filmmaking aspect, uh, it's very well crafted, very well put together for the most part, very well written. Yeah, that's my number one. How about you, Bill Bant, for number one? Yeah, I have to admit, I've only seen the right stuff once. But I did enjoy it. But yeah, the, the running time, that's a, that's a tall order. It's a little daunting, but I think you can catch it at any point in the film and just watch a little bit of it or find some clips on YouTube, but it's well worth revisiting. Yeah. Okay. Um, so my first choice for uh, favorite 80s flops, um, I'll, I'll give you the tagline first and then we'll go into the actors and the director. So the tagline for the film is, she's finally met the man of her dreams. He's not real, but you can't have everything. So this movie stars Mia Farrow, Jeff Daniels, and Danny Aiello. Have any idea? 
I do, and I can't think of the name. Uh, I haven't seen this movie. Oh, you haven't? No. Okay. I know you're a fan, though. I know already. I know that you're a fan of this movie. It's on the tip of my tongue, too, and I can't think of it. Hold on a second. Uh, no, I can't think of it. What okay. is it? What's the name of it? I can't remember it's now. It's 1989's Purple Rose of Cairo. Yeah, okay. Good directed call. by yeah, Woody that's Allen. Funny. It's, ah, damn it. I was going to say, like, Egypt was in the title. <laughs> Close, very close. <laughs> so the movie's about uh, Mia Farrow. Is, she's stuck in this dead-end job and uh, saddled with an abusive husband. And she keeps going to the movies to try to escape everything. And she sees this picture so often that one of the movie stars in the film is played by Jeff Daniels. And he literally walks off the screen in the middle of the movie and befriends her. And they actually fall in love. The first time I saw this was in film school at UM, and uh, I was just very intrigued by it. It's, it's hilarious because it's literally she's sitting there watching the movie, probably for like the 10th time or something. There's maybe two or three other people in the theater, and there's a scene where Jeff Daniel comes in, and, and he starts you know, doing the scene, which she's seen so many times before, and he literally turns and is like, hey, wait, it's you again. What are you, what are you doing here? All right. And he somehow just walks out of the screen, and then the rest of the movie like all the other actors don't know what to do or trying to have it figure out how to finish the movie without him. And then while this whole romance is going on, you find out that other prints of this film throughout the United States are having issues with all their actors are starting to like literally flub lines and they're trying to walk out of the screen too. It's a quirky little movie. I love it. I always love that premise. And it's funny enough. I remember vividly seeing the trailer okay. when I was young. And going, this looks kind of cool. I just don't know if it's enough for me. But yeah, anyway, please keep. The movie was budgeted at uh, about $15 million and only pulled in $10.6 million domestic. Okay, got it. So it was a bomb. Huh. But yeah, if you've never seen it, I think it's one of, it's probably one of my top Woody Allen movies. Yeah, that I've seen. I'm not sure. I don't know if I even knew that was a Woody Allen film. Like we say, always learning something yeah, on this always podcast. Learning something. This is an educational podcast. That's a good pick, man. Right. And I wouldn't, I don't know that I'd heard it was a flop either. I wasn't aware of any of that. So, all right. And we did not match. No, we did not. All right. What do you got for your second? Number two for me. Now, this is an interesting one. I'll start with the budget versus box office because this movie actually did make money, but it is considered at least somewhat of a flop. Okay. More because it didn't meet the expectations. This movie is from 1984. It was directed by Jim Abrams, David Zucker, and Jerry Zucker. Okay. Uh, do you know it? Do you have a guess already? I'm going to go with uh, Top Secret. You nailed it. Top Secret with an exclamation point. Yes. And I know you're a fan, big fan of this one. So. I freaking love this movie. It is an action comedy spoof directed by as they're known, Zaz, Z-A-Z, Zucker, Abrams, Zucker. The team that brought you Airplane and Naked Gun. The budget was $9 million. It actually made about $20.5 million, but somehow it got lost. Oh, yeah. And not a lot of people, there's still people today that aren't aware of this movie. Yeah, and compared to the success of Airplane. Well, there you go. A bomb, and, yeah. and that's why it's the that's why it's considered a flop. This film is a spoof of the older spy films, war, uh, World War II films and Elvis musicals. I know you're a fan of those Elvis. Yes, I am. Bill Bant. This film stars the one and only Val Kilmer as Nick Rivers. He's an American rock star who travels to East Germany to perform but uh, manages to get caught up in the resistance movement. He ends up finding love, and while fending off the East Germans to save the day, he performs his live musical numbers throughout the entire movie. That's basically it. There's not much to this, man. Uh, But just like their other spoof films, this film is incredibly quotable. It's loaded with zingers and those amazing sight gags. Now, we, we covered Naked Gun from the files of Police Squad on this podcast, so you might recognize this type of humor because of the quotes that we had mentioned from that film. But this is top secret from 1984. Here's a scene where Nick and Hillary arrive at the potato farm and there's a Shetland pony, which is coughing. And Nick says, what's wrong with him? Wagon driver. Oh, 
He caught a cold last week and he's just a little horse. He's just a little horse. There's another part. Nick Rivers says, is this the potato farm? Resistance member says, yes, I'm Albert Potato. <laughs> Nick and Hillary are having conversation. Nick says, Hillary, uh, that's an unusual name. It's a German name. It means she whose bosoms defy gravity. Nick says, I'm pleased to meet you. My name's Nick. Hillary, Nick, what does that mean? Oh, nothing. My dad thought of it while he was shaving. Nick. That's the type of humor, ladies and gentlemen. Not all of them are gems, but they make me crack up. Val Kilmer does his own singing and dancing in this movie. Performs songs as Skeet Surfin', Are You Lonesome Tonight, and Tutti Fruity. There's an underwater brawl at the end of this movie, which is amazing. Omar Sharif and Peter Cushing are in this movie. Yes, the infamous backwards scene. Ah, yeah. Again, it just didn't meet expectations after the success of Airplane. And then, was it uh, four years later or so, Naked Gun comes out. And Airplane 2 had already come out by this time. So it got swallowed by those and overshadowed. I remember seeing this myself much later and being like, wow, this movie is amazing. It's hilarious. And why have I never heard of it? And why is Val Kilmer not a huge star already? Yeah. Because I was seeing this later on. Now, Real Genius comes out the next year. And you can see his comedic stylings in that movie and how talented he is and his comedic timing, especially. So some didn't realize that this was a spoof on or excuse me, they, they you could tell it's a spoof, but they didn't realize what is it exactly a spoof of? Because it's kind of an amalgamation of things, whether it's the World War II movies or the Elvis movies. The story isn't really fleshed out. There really isn't a solid ending It's just a string of jokes put together one after another. And this is all self-admitted by the Zucker Brothers. They're like, hey, we had all these jokes we kind of wanted to tell. We just had to find a framework and this is what we came up with. But in my opinion, it's like, well, what's there to complain about? Just a string of jokes put together? I'm all for it. And honestly, Bill, when I was doing some of the research on this, even just superficially, I was just seeing still photos from certain scenes and I'm literally laughing out loud. I'm just cracking up. It's just the sight gags. They're so ridiculous. There's like a German officer sitting at a table with it. It looks like his feet are kicked up on the desk. The boots Uh are sitting up on the desk. But I remember in the scene, the boots are just glued to the desk and he just stands up and the boots are still there. (laughs) Like, it's just, it's the dumbest thing. you Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, he's not wearing the boots. They're just sitting on the desk like that. So this movie makes me happy. And again, yeah, there's a lot of people that just aren't aware of it. So go back, watch Top Secret. You'll thank me. So that's my number two. Good call. That is a good one. And I think it's, you know, it's a little confusing because it actually did make some money. It's not a flop in the the purest wave. Right. Yeah, it's a flop in the Zazz standards. Right. Yeah, and I always remember that box art or poster of the cow with the boots. Mm-hmm. And then the, the magnifying glass. But yeah, it was a while until I saw it myself. <laughs> Did All you, right. I, I just think it, I'm sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, just look it up. Look up the quotes. It's just, it's fun. Top secret. Watch it. All right. So my second favorite flop, uh, the tagline for this movie was scream now while there's still room to breathe. And it stars Shawnee Smith, Kevin Dillon, and from Blue Thunder, Candy Clark. Hell yeah. Bill, this is our first crossover. This is our, the one we have. This was, I put it, I was, this was my fifth one on my list. My final entry, The Blob from 1988. Wow. I would not have guessed we matched on this one. It's, I came across it in my search to see if there was something I wasn't, you know, I'm just going over the lists and through the lists online, seeing what I had missed. And I came across and I was like, hell Yeah. We've mentioned this in passing in one of our other podcasts, and I remember just how much I watched this when it was on. Every it was, time it was on, I'm watching just it. just something about it, and it because it was cool, and it's freaky. It's a great remake, so please, I'm, I'm glad you have this. And this was one of the ones, and when I put it on here, I was like, I bet Bill chooses this one. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, on an estimated budget of $19 million, this movie pulled in just $8.2 million domestically. Yeah, oof. It actually debuted 30 years after the original movie, starring Steve McQueen, 
Oh, it, it was actually um, directed by Chuck Russell, who was known for doing uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, which uh, most people is usually one of their favorite entries of the franchise. Mm. And uh, the description of the movie is a deadly entity from space crashes near a small town and begins consuming everyone in its path. Panic ensues as shady government scientists try to contain the horrific creature, the blob. The blob. You know, it was co-written by Frank Darabont. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's crazy. Yeah. Because Chuck Russell, the director, wrote it with him. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, I think I watched a lot, too, because I kind of had a pseudo crush on Shawnee Smith. So That's it right here in my notes. She's adorable. She's so cute, man. I know. She was in Cute in Summer School, which we covered. Yeah. It was one of those, like, she might have actually went out with me. I don't know. (laughs) You're looking at her go, yeah, she's attainable. Yeah. I got a shot. I got a shot. But yeah, I, I, I just really love the film. It, special effects are really good. I mean, there's a couple of parts where it's kind of cheese ball. It scared the crap out of me too. A couple of the scenes. Oh yeah. And uh, I'm still, I'm still waiting for that sequel. Right. I'm still waiting for the sequel. You know, you can find articles about this remake. This is a cult classic for many. Mm-hmm. This would have been a good one for under the radar. Yeah. But maybe not in the horror community, you know? So a couple things. Yeah, there was a couple differences between this and the original one. Well, just one I can name here is that in the original, I believe it's an alien entity that crash lands onto Earth versus in this, it's supposed to be a biological weapon that had been like jettisoned into space, but it crash lands on like a satellite that's like a meteorite type of Correct. thing. I haven't seen this in forever, but yeah, it's it looks really cool. The... The blob itself, it works like that gelatinous. It's First of all, it's just gross. Yes. So there's that aspect of it. But it is like watching a train wreck. And this has some of the best deaths that were so gruesome. And just that it was like, like I said, watching a train. Like you can't look away. You don't want to watch. But you're like fascinated by the filmmaking because you're like, how did they do this? The effects are pretty cool because we get an arm that dissolves. One of my personal favorites that I'd forgotten about when I was reading the synopsis, it's like, oh my God, that's right. The handyman has pulled down the sink drain. Do you remember oh, that? Yeah. The blob yep. grit, like, because like, I guess the blob like has some acidic quality. So it kind of dissolves mm-hmm. people, but it like consumes them. And there's that, uh, the other one I'd forgotten about was the waitress inside the phone booth. Yeah, that was Kenny Clark. Blob consumes, surrounds the phone booth and then just like crushes it and like goes through the, the window panes or whatever, the glass panes in the phone booth and just completely envelops her. And it's just like, that kind of thing is really, it makes you claustrophobic. It suffocates you even as a viewer. It's really creepy, man. Yeah, that's not a way I'd want to go. That movie is surprisingly effective. It stays with you. And I'll tell you what else stays with you. Kevin Dillon's mullet. Yes, he's rocking it. Good old Kevin Dillon, man. You know what? There's only two things. You know, I, know. I was thinking thing the same Kevin thing. Dillon. I was like, he did this, and then we waited and forever entourage. for him to be entourage. <laughs> I can't think of anything else he's in. Yeah, but from what I had read, you know, it didn't. It wasn't reviewed well, and uh, you know, there's a lot of other movies that came out this year that were just bigger and better at the time, or more popular, I should say. Yeah, I remember. So yeah, I was a fan of the Blob, and then there was the Blob Two, and there was always this one scene in the movie that it, it just stays in my mind where. Uh, like a hair salon or something and the blob literally comes up the sink in the hair salon and the lady's getting her hair done and the lady like literally puts her head in the sink where the blob is and the blob just envelops her head and like that image has stayed with me forever it's the only part of the movie i I remember that's in the sequel yeah it's in the sequel gotcha but that always freaked me out right so yeah even going to watch this one because of remembering that scene i was literally like curled up in a ball watching us for the first time. It's strangely effective because if you just on its surface or on its face saw the image of a giant blob coming down Main Street of a small town, right? That's a, that's an image that stays in your mind when it's kind of coming down the main avenue mm-hmm. and crushing everything. Because now in the movie, the blob, cons- the more it consumes, the more it grows. So literally turns into a giant blob. Yes. And it looks ridiculous. It looks silly. It's like, how is this even scary? It's just this faceless blob. Right. And it is scary, though. Yeah. It works. Great. Yeah, it's a great pick, though. All right. So there's there's one so far. So if you got the under, you might be in trouble. 
<laughs> hey, let's take a quick break and hear from our friends over at the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast. Hey, do you enjoy movies? If so, you're going to want to check out the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. We're inviting you to join us as we dive into beloved movies from 10 years ago and beyond. We cover every genre and every era. The show is fun and personal, but also insightful and informative. The Retro Movie Roundtable is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Please check them out over at the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Now back to our show. So here's my third pick for flop. Okay. And uh, let me see some hints I can give you. It's uh, from 1983, another 83 movie, directed by Peter Yates. Okay. And this one stars Ken Marshall. I don't have the tagline for you. Okay. I can tell you that Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs down. (laughs) Uh, I can tell you that it is a sci-fi fantasy adventure. The budget for this was $27 million, but wow. there's rumors that said it ballooned to almost $47 to $50 million due to marketing costs. It only made $16.5 million. Major, major flop. This wasn't in 3D, was it? No. Okay. I don't think so. No, I don't have, I don't actually don't have a clue on this one. There is a, an appearance, you know, who's a supporting actor, and this is a young Liam Neeson. Oh, uh, is it uh, Kroll? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I've only seen this once. Well, I saw it again just yesterday and today. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I had it on. I was like, I was working out yesterday morning and I put it, I'm like, oh, I, hey, this is free on, uh, I think it was HBO Max. I was like, cool. I can watch Kroll. I can have it on in the background. I haven't watched this in a while. And funny enough, when I was doing a little research on it, I don't know what forum it was, but it was exactly what I was thinking and feeling that this is a great sick day movie. Okay. I've said this before. This is a movie I would see like when I was homesick from school. Mm -hmm. It was a sick day. This is the kind of movie that would be on in the middle of the day and you'd be watching it and it literally is like a fever dream. It's like, it's weird. Yeah. So this movie lost a lot of money. It stars Ken Marshall as Prince Colwyn. Who, along with the band of fighters he gathers along his hero's adventure, must find the glaive, which is a five-pointed throwing star. He has to find the glaive in order to defeat the beast and his slayers, who have kidnapped the princess and reside within the Black Fortress. Now, the Black Fortress is like this giant, it's like a mountain that has flown through space and now has landed on, on Earth, I guess. And the Black Fortress is able to teleport from location to location, thus always keeping its whereabouts a mystery. Uh, like I said, we get a, appearances from a young Liam Neeson, Robbie Coltrane. So I watched most of this movie over the past two days. It's a trip, man. It's a blend of medieval fantasy and sci-fi that totally works for me. I'm all about the cross genre, but it is more like a fever dream. It's the standard hero's journey. It's a story we've seen time and time again. There's the heroes, sorcery, changelings. There's a great Cyclops character in this movie. There's quicksand, lasers, and swords, and more monsters. It's very derivative of a lot of other uh, fantasy stories. There's even like a giant spider, and it's very Lord of the Rings in moments. So the special effects do not hold up at all. 
maybe in a couple of moments, some of the laser beams are kind of cool. Uh, but for the most part, they're janky. We get a James Horner film score, which is wonderful. The theme is excellent. But the reason I say it's wonderful is because it's a carbon copy of his own score from Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Oh, really? You listen to it and you're like, oh my God, this is just Star Trek II. This is Wrath of Khan. <laughs> like, there's so many music cues throughout. You're watching going, he's just doing, he's like, I'm just going to take what I did. That was good, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it was good. And it, it's, it works here. That's cool. Uh, just copy and paste. That's pretty funny. But this movie ran into big, big trouble in the writing process and production process. And they didn't know what it wanted to be because this is clearly like Excalibur meets Star Wars. That's what they kind of want to do because this is 83. Again, we've got the Star Wars trilogy that has just come out and they started this one. It was supposed to be this medieval fantasy, but they're like, can we get us? We're going to mix things up a little bit. And then it just got too big. It got too big. It got confusing. And like I mentioned, it is very derivative. The writing isn't strong, but I'll tell you, man, as a kid, it's still grabbed my attention. I was just like, I don't care. I don't even need to hear what they're saying. I'm just going to watch and kind of be swept away. So bottom line was maybe I still love it for either what I imagine it to be or what it could be. So it just has a kind of a place in my heart because it was that weird film that was just caught in between all the other big sci-fi fantasy films that I loved. And I just loved because it it combined those two genres. But uh, yeah, it was a huge, huge flop. Yeah, I remember so little about this movie. I don't even remember when I saw it the first time, but it is one that I've been very curious about to go back and just watch because I've heard a lot of stuff about it. And then, you know, even finding out that Liam Neeson was in it just to go see his role. It is in my list of going back and sometime, but but then again, maybe we'll cover it in the podcast. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, the Cyclops is cool. The Black Fortress is cool. The Glaive is really cool. Yeah, I always remember that. The poster image is really cool, but it's that five-pointed throwing star weapon, which is really cool. Like You're like, yeah, I can't wait to see him wield that thing. Right. Yeah, but the movie's a little under two hours, and it feels a lot longer because some of the scenes are just drawn out, and they just keep repeating the same shot over and over again. But there's some sweet sequences I like when they're going through the swamp. You know me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm big into swamps. Right. Whether it's uh, Clash of the Titans or Flash Gordon. Right. And, you mentioned, and you mentioned quicksand, so I'm in. Yeah, a little quicksand. All right, so um, for my third pick, and I think this one's going to be a match. Um, so the tagline is, there can only be one. <laughs> and um, Christopher Lambert, Sean Connery, and Clancy Brown. Yeah, Highlander. Yes, 1986 is Highlander, directed by Russell Mulcahy. On an estimated budget of $16 million, this movie pulled in just $5.9 million domestically. Oh, poor Highlander. So an immortal Scottish swordsman must confront the last of his immortal opponents, a murderously brutal barbarian who lusts for the fabled prize. I liked your dramatic reading right there. First time I heard about this movie was uh, from my uncle during the holidays, and uh, he couldn't start raving about this movie about these swordsmen that are going around chopping off each other's head and there had to be one left and whoever was the last one would get this prize, whatever it was. I don't even know if we still even understand what it is after the movie. No. Uh, yeah. I eventually rented it and yeah, fell in love with it myself. It was just so bizarre. It's so cool how they jump through times. Another sci-fi fantasy film. This yes. is a little cross genre here. Sci-fi medieval fantasy mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Not a little bit for sure. Yeah. James Bond in there playing, what was he playing? Like an Italian. <laughs> yeah. Something totally Italian Spaniard or something, which is something totally bizarre. Yeah. You're playing everything that he isn't basically. <laughs> right. Exactly. What, what are you not? Okay. We'll make you all those things. Um, right. Of course, music by Queen. So right there. Ding. I can hear the music in my head right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It just became a cult classic somehow, spawned a whole bunch of horrible movie sequels a half-decent television show, and there's always rumors that they're going to try to remake it again. Oh, that, this is definitely a movie should have just left with the first one and right. called it a day. One of the most disappointing sequels of all time. Yes. The Quickening. Yes, and I remember all of you telling me, Bill, don't go see it. I'm like, yeah, I have yeah. to. <laughs> I have to. It's such a mess. It is. 
Yeah. Listen to some podcasts on that one. It's pretty funny. I actually did watch a handful, if not more, of episodes of the series. I thought that was pretty solid. I, yeah, I never got into the series, to be honest. Mm. I think I only watched the one where Lambert came on. Oh, okay. But I don't even remember anything about it. I can't even remember. The, I just I could, caught, I could, like, oh, go ahead. No, I could picture the guy who was the star, but. Right. Isn't his name Adrian something? I can't think of Oh, no. yeah. I thought he was good. Was his last name Paul? Oh, is that right? Yeah, that sounds just, right. You nailed it. Yeah, Adrian Paul. Can't think of anything else he was in. You know, I can't either, but uh, I did catch Christopher Lambert in, uh, it was a probably an older episode, but in more recent years of Blacklist with James Spader. Oh, was he? Yeah, he was in an episode or two. And I was like, damn, there he is. Still doing it. Yeah, you, you know, this is definitely. And this wasn't on your list? It was not on my list. I thought for sure we were going to match on this one. I had a feeling you would. Oh, okay. I, I wasn't sure if you would choose it. I just didn't be, want to be, because it's just, it felt obvious in a good way. Yeah. But still, I was just like, I'm going to see if I can find some other options. Okay. It's a great choice. I mean, Highlander, it's just talk about cult following. It's an awesome movie. Come on. It is. It is. Freaking Highlander at the end that gave me Obi-Wan. So, yeah, and Clancy Brown who uh, apparently was five years old when they filmed it. Oh, I know. Because he doesn't age. Uh, but no, when we did Shoot to Kill, that's where we were talking, because we figured out he was like 24 or five, maybe, when he, yeah, he's he pretty was young super enough. young. Because we're like, how is he not, how is he still look so young? Anyway, I need to, I, I need to watch the whole movie again. I should just put on the soundtrack right now. I guess this will be, since we had a crossover, this is my last flop. Okay. Because uh, we both had the blob. And so number four on my list. Should I just go again then? Uh, you can. All right, we'll do that. And okay, so the tagline for this one is best friends, social trends, and occasional murder. And this movie starred Winona Ryder, Christian Slater, and Shannon Darty. That was a flop? Heathers? Yes. Ah. Heathers from Whitey. Heather's from 1988 on an estimated budget of only $3 million. This movie pulled in just $927,000 domestically. I couldn't believe that myself either. I would have never guessed that. And it was directed by uh, Michael Lehman, who uh, is also known for directing one of the other big flops of the 90s, Hudson Hawk, Mm. and uh, also directed Airheads. (laughs) And uh, synopsis for this movie is Veronica Sawyer, who played by Winona Ryder, hates the girls in her popular clique. Enter mysterious newcomer JD, Christian Slater, who offers her the perfect, a bet deadly solution to end the Heather's social tyranny. Love this movie. Yeah. I mean, this is what launched Christian Slater's career. Oh, yeah. Uh, I loved it, too. It was dark. It was different. He was doing his best Jack Nicholson. Yes, he was. Did it well. He did. He was great. Yeah, I don't think I saw this until college. And I, Winona Ryder, what can you say? I mean, I always had a thing for her. She's adorable. I mean, she's super cute, pretty, but she had a little goth thing kind of going. And also, I don't know if goth is even the right description for like her character. In this movie, they're very, what is it? Uh, well, you said it in the description, but uh, she has a darker, yeah, she has a, little... a darker, edgier kind of vibe about her cutting kind of vibe i think but uh yeah that that movie uh, yeah it took me by surprise i haven't seen that in forever oh my god looking forward to going back and uh revisiting and doing an episode on that one too yeah winona Ryder, man you know i now i'm thinking of all of i mean between beetlejuice and edward scissorhands man she had a run man yeah she did and now stranger things is she coming back for the new season uh i don't know for sure i would imagine Okay. I haven't, uh, I know there's trailers out. I've only seen one, I think. I know she's in the show. Soon. Yeah, yeah. She's in the show, but I haven't seen the show. So, yeah, I'm looking forward surprise, to that. Surprise. All right. All right. You're number five. My number five. We've only matched once. Okay. I'm thinking we're going to match on this one. All right. Go ahead. Well, I, again, I, I wasn't uh, as cool as you and I don't have taglines. That's okay. So I can't give you a tagline. But uh, this is a sci-fi adventure film okay. directed by Henry Weiner. Oh, okay. Oh. Which did not match. Oh. Which did not match. I'm going to give you some of the cast members. Okay. Kate Capshaw, Tom Skerritt, 
But here comes the giveaway. Leah Thompson, Tate Donovan, Kelly Preston, and a really young Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, wow. Okay. I almost was thinking about putting this on my list. Yeah. But um, yeah, so it's um, 86's Space Camp. You got it. Wow. Space Camp. One word, but space is capitalized and camp is capitalized. This S in space and the C in camp. Space Camp. So you got to pronounce it Space Camp. 1986. This film costs, depending on the where, where you're looking, costs anywhere from 18 million to 20 million. Some uh, somewhere I saw 25 million, but in general, between 18 and 20 million bucks. It only made 9.7 million. This movie was inspired by the actual space camp in Huntsville, Alabama, which I seriously, man, considered going to, but ended up just dreaming about going to as a kid because my second love was all things space. Right. Astronauts, astronomy, astrology, space, go to the stars, obviously influenced by Star Wars. That was, you know, it's like, now I just want to go into space. My very first love was trains, but then it quickly turned to space. So when I was young, yeah, I was like, how do I go to space camp? How do I learn this stuff? How do I learn how to be an astronaut? This movie in a nutshell is about a camp instructor slash astronaut played by Kate Capshaw and uh, her five camp members that are mistakenly launched into space aboard the space shuttle Atlantis. And they have to each find their individual strengths and come together as a team in order to, in order to safely land back on Earth at White Sands, New Mexico. That's it in a nutshell. So I mentioned, yeah, the, the cast. And as a kid, man, I, I don't know how many times I'm going to repeat that one of my major crushes was Lilia Thompson from, of course, Back to the Future. But here she plays Catherine. We've got Tate Donovan. Man, I, young Kelly Preston. Oh, goodness. Yes. And uh, rest in peace. Yeah, absolutely. Another sad loss in recent times here. Uh, but yeah, I had not recalled that Joaquin Phoenix was 12-year-old Max in this movie. Uh, Larry B. Scott plays Rudy. Uh, Rudy. He was great. I remember he was fun in this. And then you get Frank Welker voicing Jinx, a sentient robot who befriends Max. So you had the had Jinx, the robot. So I remember all these uh, actors, characters. And yeah, it was just for me, it was just all about the dream of going to space. So I, I got on board with the idea. It was a stretch. But yeah, I like the adventure. I liked how these characters came together because they are all, you know, kind of fighting one another before they end up being thrown into this uh, situation of extreme circumstance. And like one of my favorite scenes of all time was always when 12-year-old Max gets, he has to go on a spacewalk to retrieve like an oxygen cylinder aboard the shuttle when like all hell is breaking loose. And Rudy has to calm him down by calling him Luke and telling him to use the force. So there's yes. a direct Star Wars reference in it. And I was like, yeah, this is already cool. I'm, I'm all about this movie. So major issue here, of course, was that this movie was released less than five months after the Space Shuttle Challenger tragedy. Although the filming for the movie was completed before the tragedy occurred. Yeah, because I think the originally it was supposed to be like released right after, wasn't it? And then they pushed it back this summer. They should have just waited mm. like over a year. Yeah, yeah, stuff. Uh, Leah Thompson mentioned in an interview after their first day of shooting that they were 10 days behind schedule and what was supposed to be a three-month shoot became six. She also mentioned that we had T-shirts printed up that said Space Camp. It's not just a movie. It's a career. (laughs) But actually, instead of Space Camp, it said Space Cramp. (laughs) Uh, Didn't get great reviews. Again, bad timing in its release. But yeah, I just went with it, man. I thought it was fun because I want to go in space. It was like, these kids get to actually go into space. How are they going to do? Are they going to function? Because I was like, yeah, I want to be on uh, spatial, even if it wasn't going into space, just to see uh, how do I work everything? I want to learn this stuff. What button does what? What do I press to get this thing up? I, I don't know. It was just all fascinating to me, uh, the adventure of it all. And by the way, Bill Bant. This just happened a few days back. An expanded edition of the film score, a two-CD set of the film score, has just been released. That music was composed by 
John Williams. That's right. One and only. And I listened to a little bit of it. It's fantastic. The theme is incredible. I forgot how much I love the Space Camp theme. And for those listeners out there, fans of John Williams, many of you in the Los Angeles area or otherwise, but here, especially in Los Angeles, may have had the opportunity to see John Williams perform with the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra live at the Hollywood Bowl. We try to go each year, Bill, myself, our friends, Marwan and Chris and others, and uh, it's always a treat. It's something we mark our calendar for and look forward to. And I believe, Bill, he's played this theme before. I don't think. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is a great theme. What is this from again? It's one of those like he'll do two or three in a row. It right. doesn't actually say what all the songs were from. And then you forget. And I was because I listened to the theme. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I forgot how much I love the theme from Space Camp. It's wonderful. It's very uh, like Olympic fanfare. Okay. Because he's done the Olympics too, the music for the Olympics. It's very much in that uh, style, but um, the horns and everything. But uh, yeah, listen to it. Yeah, I'll have to because I don't ever remember hearing that at a show. We, and we always talk about it too. There's always that one he plays where we're looking at each other like, which, which movie is this? What right. is this from? Totally so recognizable. Probably be one of them, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's played it regardless. Ladies and gents, this isn't the best movie in the world. It's cheesy. I haven't watched it in years, to be completely honest. But this was one of my favorites as a kid that I rewatched often and could quote, and I couldn't quote it right now. But don't pressure me. Don't put me on the spot. But this was, yeah, one of my favorite flops. Yeah, it's another one I think I've only seen uh, once. Oh, really? Only yeah. once, huh? Oh, I watched this on repeat. But yeah, uh, I mean, that cast. Um, doesn't it have Lamar from Revenge of the Nerds in that? Uh, is that... Yeah, that's probably Larry B. Scott as Rudy. Maybe. I only know him as Lamar. I th- yeah, I, I believe you're right. Okay. Yeah, that's one I would I would certainly watch again. Maybe watch with my kids. Oh, yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, I guess I'm on my final favorite flop. We only matched once. So if you took the under, you're a winner. Right. And um, tagline for this one is the ultimate in alien terror. Oh, Sure. I think I know this already, but yeah, this. I'm glad. I'm glad you're putting this on there. Please continue. Yeah, this one almost didn't make the parameters because an estimated budget of 15 million dollars. This movie pulled in just 13.7 million domestically. So that was the United States. So uh, movie stars: Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, Keith David, and Richard Dysart, and it's directed by John Carpenter. Of course, we are speaking of 1982's. The Thing. Hell yeah. Definitely one of the top five remakes of all time. Yeah. Simple plot. A research team in Antarctica is hunted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes the appearance of its victims. Fucking love this movie. So cool. Fucking A, Bubba. To quote Fred Ward from The Right Stuff. I don't even know where to start with this one. It just... Like that, that scene with the blood. I don't know how many times I've watched this movie. Every time it still gets me. Even though I know uh, it's, Petri it's dish coming. scene, yes, yeah, just the tension in this film is amazing. The setting is great because even though it's uh, a camp, you really still can't go anywhere because of the elements. Yeah, you can trust no one. It just makes it so creepy. Even at the end, you don't know is Kurt Russell maybe now has possessed by the alien? Is Keith David possessed by the alien? It's one of the best endings. Of all time. Yeah, it's one of those cliffhangers that just leaves you with a chill. That's all you get. And the special effects are so bizarre. Yeah. So cool. And disturbing. Yes. Even though they're dated somewhat, but they work so well because it just is so out there. Like a a head turning into like a spider creature. Right. Still freaky. Still freaky. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of great, great effects. Great sound design Mm -hmm. go along with it. And literally no women in the cast except for a female voice, which is uh, John Carpenter's ex-wife, Adrienne Barbeau. Mm. And uh, it was a great mix of character actors. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, it came out the same month as E.T. And at that point, E.T. just ate everything else alive. Right. Um, And yeah, it didn't. I don't think it uh, got good reviews at the time either. It was one of those movies that people had to go back on and go, whoa, wait a second. 
this movie actually is really damn good. No doubt about it. One of my favorites. I love the sci-fi element of it. But yeah, the the effects are creepy, gross, terrifying, horrific, whatever descriptor you'd like. But yeah, there's like multiple heads, stretchy skin. And even when the one of the dogs is being torn apart from within. Yeah. And all the like tentacles are reaching outward. And it's just, it looks awful and gross. And it's just, you, you kind of. Or when Richard Dysart's going to do the shock paddles. And he's about to put it in the chest. And the chest literally just opens. Right. Oh, God, that's just. Yeah. Craziness. Crazy. But yeah, you did that that petri dish scene is amazing. It's great. Like again, listeners, if you if you haven't seen it or you just want to get a taste, watch it on YouTube because that's tension because no, they don't know who's infected basically. Yeah, and there's a, it's a blood test. I forget. I I don't want to get into the specifics, but they're all sitting there and they kind of all agree to be tested, and one of them is the alien mm-hmm. or is has the alien inside of them. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you put it on there. Cause it's just, it's a pleasure to talk about that one. Uh, we'll get around to doing that movie. Oh yeah, definitely. I think uh, pretty much everything we mentioned today are all future episodes. I don't for think sure. there's anything we're, uh, we're missing on. That's for sure. Yeah. Yep. Cool. That was fun, man. Yeah. Well, only one, uh, like we said, one crossover, one crossover. I thought for sure you would have had the thing or Highlander. That's where I thought we were. Like I said, I, I purposely, I tried to stay away from the big name mm-hmm. ones. I, speaking of Keith David from The Thing, I was going to potentially choose another John Carpenter film, They Live. Oh, yes. Which did have a little bit of success when it was released initially, but then had a drop off and kind of disappeared. And it's just more, that's one of those cult oh, yeah. movies and has one of the, Best fight, fight scenes. scenes, of course. Oh, yes. Love that. And my favorite scene. quote of all time I've come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Love that line. All right. So uh, I think that about wraps it up for this week's mini-sode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Next week, we'll be discussing Above the Law, starring Steven Seagal and Pam Greer. Um, a quick request from us here at the All 80s Movies Podcast please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. Those subscribes and reviews really help us to continue producing the show. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook Meta at All80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcastall80s. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>